Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Amen. Well, uh, my name is Elisha Lawrence. Uh, I'm the college, high school, and middle school pastor here. And that means that unless you flunk out of school in the sixth grade, you've got to hang out with me sometime. So I am excited to be here this morning. Um, we have been uh, in a series on the Ten Commandments, and, and we just finished with the Ten Commandments uh, last week. And, and the chapters that follow that in Exodus talk a lot about the tabernacle and how it was constructed and the, the different uh, dimensions and things like that. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. I was pretty hopeful to get to teach on the dimension, dimensions of the tabernacle. I've, I've been working out a lot uh, in a, a cubit. You know, I was, it, they measure by cubits back then, and I was hoping to get to say, you know, a cubit. It was 10 cubits wide. A cubit is from here to here. If you ignore this massive bicep, it's about 10 of those wide. That's how, that's how wide the tabernacle is. And as fun as that would have been, um, after Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments from God, there was an incident in Exodus 32 that is incredibly powerful for us uh, to consider and think about. So that, that's what we're, we're going to be camping out today. That's the story of, of the golden calf. I'm going to read it to you guys. It's a little bit long, but I'll try to do so with feelings so that you guys can follow along in Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said, okay, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, sons, and daughters, and bring them to me. So the people did that. They brought him all their gold. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who you brought up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They made for themselves a golden calf, and they've worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and it's a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I, my, my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and he said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants? You swore by your own self and said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I promised, I'll give to you your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. 
And as soon as Moses came down the mountain, as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, "Uh, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. So I said to them, well, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, of God, Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side and each of you go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. Kill your brothers, your companions, and your neighbors. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Now that's kind of shocking. And not what you'd expect after hearing the first two commandments just such a short time ago. No other gods before me. Don't make a carved image in my likeness. Don't make an idol. And yet here we are. It hasn't been very long at all. And Israel explicitly violates those two commands. They were slaves. You know, uh, how is that even possible? Think about all the things that is, the Israelites have gone through up to this point. They were slaves under Pharaoh. Moses keeps asking for their freedom, but Pharaoh just keeps singing that top 20 hit from Third Eye Blind in the early 2000s. I'll never let you go. Moses, I will never let you go. But God prevailed over Pharaoh in pretty amazing ways, not what you see every day type of ways. Rivers of water turned to blood, acres of crops of corn and wheat devoured by locusts, Uh, entire herds of cattle eliminated by baseball-sized hail, an outbreak of a blistering skin disease that leaves all the people miserable and the Israelites untouched. When Pharaoh was compelled to let them go, he changed his mind and chased them to the Red Sea. In a moment of terror, as they see the Egyptians getting closer and closer and closer, they turn around to the waters and they see the waters peel back and build up two giant walls of water with a dry path going right between And the only explanation as they walk through those walls of water held up, this must be the hand of God. In the desert, God cares for them. They're starving in the desert. They wake up every morning to fresh wonder bread from heaven. When their throats begin to close up, not having had water for days, Moses hits a rock and makes a water fountain for them and for their animals. And then the experience at Mount Sinai, when they got the Ten Commandments, they stand on this mountain, it's covered in smoke, there's lightning, there's thunder. As it shook, they hear the sound of a trumpet. It's this terrifying experience of the presence of God and its reality. 
They even say to Moses, Moses, you got to go up for us. We can't handle this. This God is too scary for us. You've got to go talk to him for us. And now just three months later, they build the golden calf. It just doesn't add up. This seems so impossible. And yet, before we rain down judgment on Israel for what they did, we need to realize something. And it's that we do the exact same thing that they did. Exodus 32 is actually a story about us. It's about our fight with sin and idolatry. Their struggle is our struggle too. We battle with the exact same things that they did. But we still need to see how they got there. How did they go from the Red Sea to a golden calf? How did they get from being in awe of God to worshiping a different God? Well, the first thing that we see in the passage is that idolatry is fear grasping for control. The Israelites come to Aaron. Aaron, stand up, big boy. We want you to do something. Up, make us gods who will go before us. Why do they ask for that? Well, the verses tell us two things about why. One, it says that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. We'll talk about that word here in a second, delayed. Uh, And then it also says that when they were thinking about Moses, they were like, we don't know what has become of him. We don't know where he is. You see, the Israelites wanted gods that would go before him. That's what they asked for. That had previously been Moses and ultimately God. God led Moses and Moses led the people through the pillar of fire at night and and the clouds during the day. God would tell them to go and they'd be on the move. But now they've just been sitting here at the foot of the mountain for weeks on end. They start wondering if Moses is ever going to come back. Did he leave us? Is he even alive? Verse 1 tells us they saw Moses delayed. Now that word has additional meaning. Um, It also means ashamed or disappointed them. Moses, God, had disappointed them. We trusted him and we came out of Egypt to follow him. But he left us. Where is he? We need him right now. Who do we follow now? What do we do? They had no control and they were just sick of waiting. The Israelites were afraid and they felt alone. How are we going to survive? We've got families and livestock and we're in a freaking desert. There's so much uncertainty. Our leader left us. We don't know if he's coming back. We can't just stay here. What if somebody attacks us? We got to do something. We need someone to help us. Somebody that we can trust. They were overcome with fear. And listening to those feelings of fear, they grasped for control. They didn't feel like they could trust God or Moses anymore. They needed gods that they could control. Something or someone that they could hold on to. Are we really that different? We're filled with fear too. We ask the exact same questions that they do. Where is God right now? Does he not see that the rent or mortgage payment is coming up? Does he not see how lonely I am? Does he not see how my boss is treating me? Does he not see that I don't have time or money for my car to break down right now? Does he not see that my kids are rebelling against me and I'm losing them? God, where are you? Advertisers understand our problem with fear. They target those fears to get at our emotions. This week, I heard a few different home improvement ads on on, uh, Spotify. One was from Home Depot. It started off, your floors are under attack. Oh, gosh, they are. I didn't even know. Wow. What am I going to do? 
And another one from Lowe's, it started off more pleasant. Your kids are growing up, and so are their clothes. But your dryer isn't growing. It's old and small and falling apart. How are you going to care for your kids with that old small dryer? You're a terrible father. (laughs) Wow, Lowe's, that's pretty harsh. (laughs) They know what hits us. They know where we're vulnerable. Some of us might try to act like we're not afraid of anything, but we're all afraid. Whether it's heights, roller coasters, and sharp objects like me, honey, don't be careful with that knife, or elevators, clowns, and dentists, we're all afraid of something. Personally, one of my greatest fears is riding on an elevator with a clown who has dental tools. It's terrifying. (laughs) Combining all of them. Fear is part of our human condition, and its ugly counterparts are stress and anger. Stress is a long to-do list with no time to get it done. Get those kids to school, take the car to the mechanic, make a presentation at work, and coach a soccer game that night. Things are spinning out of control. It's fear that you're coming off the rails, that life is falling apart, and you just don't have time or energy to put it all back together. Anger is just fear spoken with a different attitude. You're angry because you want something, but you don't get it. Whether it's power, love, a new house, a job promotion, or perfect kids, we lash out in anger because we don't have what we want. And we're mad that our attempts to control life just aren't working. Stress and anger are just fear in another set of clothes. We all deal with it. And it's not hard for me to talk with you guys about this. I'll never go pro in any sports, but I am a professional worrier. Ed Welch says that worriers are visionaries minus the optimism. We live in the future, prognosticating potential doom at every corner. If you had a security camera in my house watching my conversations with my little daughter, you'd see things like this. Uh, Don't stand on a chair. You could fall. You'll break a leg. Crack your skull. The hospital bill will be through the roof. We can't pay for that. And you've got college coming. Nora, think about your future. Sit down on that chair. (laughs) Worriers are irrational. And they can't be reasoned with. No matter how far-fetched our conclusions, someday we'll be right and you'll be sorry. The truth is I worry because I'm searching for control. If I prepare for the worst, maybe it won't be so bad whenever it actually comes. And honestly, sometimes it's worse than that. I worry because I know people will listen to me. I'll get their attention. They'll see how hard my life is. And maybe they'll make me feel better. Worry makes people feel sorry for me, and I've got an excuse just in case I mess up with something. You see, our fears reveal the worst about us. The attention we crave are desperate grabs for power, for control that lead us into idolatry. And you might be thinking, but they built an actual idol. I never do that. What type of appeal does building a golden cow have? Well, notice they they did make a cow. It wasn't just an arbitrary selection or because they were Chick-fil-A fans. Although there are some of you who've talked about Chick-fil-A's golden nuggets in a semi-idolatrous way. And I think you know who you are. After built, uh, it was, uh, sorry, there was an Egyptian god named Apis that was worshipped while they were in Egypt around this time. And guess what he looks like? That's right. He's a cow, a bull to be exact. After building the bull, Aaron declared a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the God that they had served. They didn't just create a new God or call it Apis, the name of the Egyptian God. 
they convinced themselves that this cow was God, that this cow was Yahweh. This is the God that's been with us the whole way. This is what he's really like. Now he's here with us. Now we're safe. But it wasn't really God. It was a God they crafted in their minds. It was a God that they just made up. They couldn't make up God in their heads because God made them. God made himself known to them in the Ten Commandments. And the second thing that he said, after have no other gods before me, is don't make any image in my likeness. Reason being, because there's no thing, there's no object, there's no created thing that can fully represent who God is. Everything will fall short. God defines creation, not the other way around. This is what we do. Anytime that we say, that can't be what God is like. Anytime we take a part of God that we don't like, his hatred of sin, his absolute rule over our lives, his wisdom about sex and money. Whenever we take those parts away from who he is, we create a false God, one that's made in our image, one that allows us to live however we like. Taking away part of God or adding to him characteristics that aren't his, that's idolatry. Another thing that's interesting is how they got the cow. They made it of gold, but where do you get gold in a desert? Well, remember what happened whenever Israel left Egypt? God told them to ask the Egyptians for their treasures. And then when they did ask for their treasures, God gave them favor and the Egyptians actually gave it to them. One of those treasures was gold. God provided the gold for them. They used a gift from God to make an idol. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Every idol that we make is made in the exact same way. Brad Bigney says this about idols. He says, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. It's when we trade God for his stuff. We use what he gives us to take his place. We don't don't know where Moses is, and, and we don't know where his God is either. Let's worship something more tangible, something that we can see or feel or touch. And no, we're not going to dance around a golden cow. We're more sophisticated than that. The same guy, Brad Bigney, says this. He says, we live in a culture that is forever inflating the things of this world to religious proportions, trying to fill the vacuum that's been left by taking God out. To a few examples of this, sports aren't bad. They can be glorifying to God. I love sports. But let's think about the way that sports have reached religious proportions in America. We've got stadiums that would make the ancient cathedrals that they worshiped in in Europe pale in comparison. We have songs of praise offered to the team that we adore and the chants that we've got. In sports, it's a community of people who share the same treasure and bond around it every Saturday or Sunday. We can show our devotion through offerings to, the support, to support the team, like buying season tickets or apparel. A recent study by psychologist Daniel Mann showed, as church attendance and religious affiliation have decreased in America, sports fandom has increased at a rapid rate. Is it possible that there's a correlation between our religious devotion to sports and our fading desires? 
to pursue knowing God and building up his kingdom. Sports aren't bad in and of themselves. But when our love for sports reaches religious proportions, we've replaced God with an idol. We're exalting something he made to the place that only he deserves. Another example, our bodies. They're made in the image of God. There's nothing evil about the matter that makes us up. Yet how much money do we spend molding ourselves? We've got problems that have resulted from our obsession with our bodies. Think about eating disorders from eating too little or steroids and over-exercise. Not to mention the objectification of people through things like pornography. We care more about our bodies, and that's okay to care about your body. It's not wrong to do that, but when your mind is consumed with how you look or with how someone else looks, you're well on your way to making an idol out of what God has made. Technology is amazing. It shows creativity and innovation, using the minds that God has given us to create and cultivate. But what are our smartphones doing to us? We're more likely to constantly check our phone than we are to pray without ceasing. We're more likely to make an angry post on Facebook than to go and tell our brother a fault between us and him alone, as Matthew 18 calls us to do. We're more likely to escape through our technology than run to God as our hiding place. What would you say holds greater sway and power in your life? The Lord or a phone? made up of stuff that God created by minds that he designed. G.K. Chesterton put it very wisely. When we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing. We'll worship anything. Driven by our fears and our desperate desire to have control, we can make anything into an idol. Our fears reveal what we really worship, how we strive for control, and how we give created things God-like power in our lives. You don't need gold and a graving tool to make an idol. The human heart is far more creative, making idols out of anything and everything. And and you might be saying, okay, Elisha, we make idols. I get it. Everybody does it. But what's up with God's response to this? Why is idolatry so stinking serious? You're thinking, God, I, I see what they did. They messed up. They made an idol. But what follows is way too intense. You threaten to wipe them out. Moses gets the priests together and they kill 3,000 people. God sends a plague to kill even more of them. Isn't that a little overboard? Well, certainly this is not how we deal with idolatry now, not in that same way. But we do need to see how serious their idolatry was and how serious our idolatry is as well. You see, in, in idolatry, we become what we fear the most. In verse 7, what does God accuse them of doing? He says they corrupted themselves. That word corrupted means destroyed. God's saying by making an idol, the people destroyed themselves. And this is exactly what idols do to those who worship them. Psalm 115.8 talking about idols says this, those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. Pastor Ligon Duncan says it like this, when we want something too much, we take on the worst characteristics of it. If you value money above all else, you'll turn greedy and stingy. If you value power above all else, you'll be scheming and heartless. 
Idolatry turns us into the worst parts of humanity. As we remove God, we grow to be less and less like him. Notice what happens to Aaron. How he let them walk into idolatry for fear of what they'd think. You see, Aaron was a people pleaser. Not only does he allow them to walk into idolatry, but he totally blames shifts rather than owning his own sin. Uh, uh, it's not my fault, Moses. Uh, where were you? Uh, it's your fault. Uh, it's not my fault. It, it's the people's fault, Moses. You know how evil these guys are. And I don't know how this cow got here. We just put it in an oven, 350 for 45 minutes, and it just came out like this. <laughs> rather than saving them from a major mistake, Aaron gives them what they want. So he can have what he wants, their approval. He appeases their desires and he ends up destroying them in the process. Being a people pleaser led Aaron to destroy the very people that he wanted to please. That's a very sobering word if you're anything like me. I care way too much about what people think. Sometimes my greatest fear is having conflict. The worst thing that could happen to me is hurting someone. Yet, in pretending to keep the peace, I'm not being a true friend. If a friend is about to walk off a cliff, he's going to want you to tell him. And if you don't, he's probably going to be pretty mad at you. What did you tell me? You're a terrible friend. In my great fear that I might hurt someone, I end up hurting them in the worst ways. In my fear that I'll be a, ter- a bad friend, I end up being a terrible friend. I become the very, fr- the very thing that I was afraid of becoming. God help us to be leaders like Moses, who confronted the people's sin, rather than people pleasers like Aaron, who let their sin destroy them. On a, as a, on a side note, as a church, I think we should be deeply thankful that we have elders and leaders who care enough about us to speak up when our sin is killing us. I know it's hard to be confronted over sin. It can feel embarrassing, humiliating. But remember Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. It's so much better to have an open rebuke that and on the front end it feels terrible, it feels painful, but it's much better to have that than to have somebody kiss us on our way to death. Well, there's one last thing about our battle with idolatry that we need to address. And it's this, someone became what we feared most so we could become like him. Something odd happens in God's interactions with Moses about Israel's sin. God says he's going to destroy Israel because they've destroyed themselves. He says he'll start over with Moses. And Moses begs God not to do it. He reminds him of his glory He reminds God of his promises to Israel, and he begs him for mercy against the people. In another place, in the same passage later on, Moses says, blot my name out of your book if that's what it takes to forgive them for their sin. Moses put his neck on the line for these people in the middle of their idolatry and rejection of God. Moses puts himself between God and Israel. And although God does judge Israel, It says he relents. He shows mercy. Now, this wasn't because Moses reminded God of something he forgot. God doesn't forget things. It's not like God was like, oh, yeah, Moses, thanks. I totally forgot about my mercy. I'll make sure to keep that in mind during the New Testament so I'm not all scary and judgmental and stuff. That's not what happened. 
God allowed Moses to intercede for the people. There's another account of this same incident in Deuteronomy, and it says that after this, Moses fell on his face for 40 days praying for the Israelites to to have mercy from God. But God wouldn't ultimately allow Moses to die in their place. And that's because Moses failed too. Later on, he'd get angry with the people. He sinned, and he messed up. Moses' failures disqualified him from being a substitute for the people. He needed a substitute too. He had sins. He needed an intercessor. He needed someone to get in between him and God. But there was another who would one day stand between the people and God, and he never messed up. He would bear the weight of the sin of Israel, and he'd bear our sin too. He bore all our idolatries. All the times that we make substitutes for God, all the times that we replace God with something he made, he was killed so that we could be saved. He was counted as an idol worshiper so that we could be counted as perfect. Jesus Christ is the better Moses. Worshiping idols should destroy us, but Christ was destroyed in our place. In Matthew 4, we see that Christ was taken up into the mountains by Satan. And Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all these can be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. Jesus replied with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before the Lord God. And him only shall you serve. Christ should have been up in the mountain with God and Moses when Moses was receiving the commandments in perfect fellowship with God. And and Moses doesn't even know how much time has gone by because he's just enjoying God's presence. That's where Jesus deserved to be. He should have been enjoying that sweet fellowship with God. He shouldn't have to come down from the mountain to die for the idolatry of the people who forgot. Yet he came down the mountain And he went up a tree. The Lord drove a sword through his own son as the Levites did to their sons. So that God could bestow a blessing on us. Our idolatry is so serious that Jesus had to die for it. As Moses put himself between God and the Israelites, so Jesus put himself between God and us. Jesus endured our punishment for idolatry. So now the effects of sin can be reversed. We don't have to become what we fear the most. Rather than growing dead and lifeless like the idols that we serve, we can grow to become more like Jesus Christ. When we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Jesus comes to live inside of us through his Holy Spirit. He he enables us to fight against these self-serving desires that so often battle against him. He reminds us what the Israelites didn't realize. You know what that was? Their fears weren't true. They thought God had left them, but he was with them the whole time. As they danced around the idol, as they made the idol, all the sin and rebellion against God, he was there the whole time. Our feelings will lie to us. Worry, anxiety, anger, fear seem so logical, but they're rarely, if ever, right. God speaks the truth. 
We can come to Him with our fears. We don't have to turn to the things that He's made. We can instead turn to the living God who actually doesn't disappoint and who can transform us into His own image and give us perfect peace. We can always come to Him with our fears. He's always present even when we don't feel Him. Let me pray for you, God.